Well, good morning, Hilton Head Island Community Church. I hope you're doing well this morning. Thank you guys so much for being here. Those of you who are here in the house, those of you who are back on the backstage patio, I want to thank you guys for being out there on backstage patio today. Uh, And also those of you who are watching live online, guys, thanks so much for watching maybe later online. Um, Why don't we here in the house give it up for them who are on backstage and watching online. Thank you guys for being a part. Come to week three of, in our series called These Three Remain. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or device or however you access God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13 today as we finish out this three-week series, this short but uh, kind of a deep dive study into one particular verse from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, writes these Words. We're going to be taking a look at these words today. And why in the world did Paul take these three, faith, hope, and love, and kind of take those virtues and, and highlight them above all the other virtues? And why is love the greatest one? Cynthia talked a lot about love just a few minutes ago. She talked about the love that, that God gave us, that God like, you know, lavished upon us through his son's death. And our response to that, our, our response to, to God's love says everything. But, but I think in our culture, in our day and age, and uh, e- even in our minds, in our hearts, in our, our kind of our souls, I, I wonder if we really understand uh, love. I, I don't think that we have a proper understanding of what love is. The recent study claims that 60%, I want you to just let this sink in, of all humans feel like no one really loves them. 60%. Let that sink in for just a second. 4.4 billion people on this earth, according to this study, believe that no one loves them. Let that sink in for a minute. 4.4 billion people people think that no one loves them. Does that explain a lot about our world? I want you to think about that for a moment. Does that explain a lot about where we are in society in terms of like all the wars and uh, the, the conflict that goes on, the evil and the violence? It, it makes so much sense now. Like if, we, if you believe that stat to be true, if you believe that survey to be true, that 4.4 billion people on this planet do not think they're loved, then no wonder we have all the hatred and the division and the fighting and families being ripped apart like they are. It explains why we as humanity try to redefine love. If we generally feel unloved, if there are 4.4 billion people that feel unloved, that stat is true, or even if it's fractionally true, it explains a lot about where we are as society. It explains a lot about where we are. But here's the thing. I don't believe that there are 4.4 billion people that really, truly feel like they're unloved. I think there are at least 4.4 billion people that don't understand true love, God's love. Some of you are like, hey, it's not Valentine's Day, pastor. 
You're not supposed to be preaching a message on love. Well, we're here in 1 Corinthians 13, and we come to this point in this this great book that, that Paul wrote to a church, a first century church, part of the first church, and he's defining what spirituality is all about. He's defining spiritual gifts. And Paul, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, knew that they would take that and they would use that as a comparison game, that they would use it to compete against each other, they, they would use it to boast and puff themselves up. And he understands that, they would take that, those great spiritual things, and they would think hierarchy and title and, and comparison. And so Paul levels the playing field by diving into this whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 on love. And he wants them to realize and get that they've got to keep the main thing the main thing. In Hilton and Allen Community Church, I'm saying the same thing to you and to us and to me today, that we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is, is that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die a brutal death on the cross for us to take our sins so that we could have a relationship with God. He rose again three days later. Defeated death so that we could have eternity with God in heaven one day. And it's that basis of a love, of love, agape love, which we're going to take a look at here in a moment. And, and, and it's that basis that is the main thing for each and every one of us. We call this chapter the love chapter. In fact, I, I officiated a, a wedding uh, last night and we often use 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and most of you probably heard the chapter, the whole chapter read at a wedding or something like that. Uh, I'm guessing that you probably have an idea of what you think of when you hear Paul or you hear a preacher or someone uh, say these words that love is all these different things. And, and I don't know about you, but the first time I heard those, the thing I thought of was romantic love. That's natural. That's normal, right? I guess what we think of when we think of 1 Corinthians 13 but Paul is talking about a love here that is so beyond, so beyond a romantic kind of love. And I want us to look at this and examine why Paul vaulted love above all others. The British pastor and theologian G. Campbell Morgan wrote that examining 1 Corinthians 13 is like dissecting a flower to understand if you tear it apart too much, it loses its beauty. I think that's true. So my prayer right now over these next few minutes together is as we take a look at this last virtue that Paul mentions that he's just described all throughout this chapter that we would be able to take it apart but not lose the beauty of what he's trying to communicate. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 and now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I want you to do something though. I want you to see the first three verses that Paul writes, inspired by God's Holy Spirit. I want you to see what he writes all the way back at the beginning of the chapter because to understand love, we need to have this contrast of what Paul was trying to do in the first place. He says this, if I, and we talked about this in week one a little bit, but I think it needs to be pointed out once again because it's most important with this last virtue. It's most important with this most important of virtues. 
He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, he says, and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I don't know if you've been around someone or maybe seen someone who constantly talks about what they've done for the world and all the great things that they've done. And listen, I fall into this trap sometimes as well. Even with our church, I talk about serving, 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 and serving. And, and i got to tell you, church, if, if we are a church, and we're going to be talking about kind of our DNA in a few weeks as a church and who we are, and I believe where God is leading us as a church I think if we have this list of things and keep track of all the things that we've done, and I'm not talking about uh, celebration. We need to celebrate what God has done in us and through us. We as a church need to celebrate it. But if we wear that as a badge of honor and are doing it just from the place of duty, we have missed the whole point. Paul is saying not, he's not saying that these things are wrong. He's not ha- saying that having this great faith is wrong or that having the gift of prophecy is wrong. He's not saying that speaking in the uh, tongues of men and of angels is wrong. What Paul is saying here is to do the spiritual thing for God, but to do it without love is meaningless. He's driving, as he often does, at motive. He's driving at motive. And there are times, admittedly, I have to check myself and I have to think, what's my motive? What's my motive? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. In my study in the weeks leading up to this particular message series, I read one commentator that said that these are the forever gifts, faith and hope and love. And Paul is saying, and he said before previously, that all of the other spiritual gifts are for the church in the church age. In other words, we don't take them with us. Just like I can't take that great set of golf clubs that I have with me. Just like I can't take my great 2005 beat-up truck that needs a lot of work with me, that I love because it's paid off. We can't take it with us. But these three things we take with us, faith, and hope, and love. And over the past few weeks, we've looked at faith. The Greek word for faith is pistis. The Greek word for hope is elpis. And we come to love today. And it's a word that some of you may be familiar with, some of you may not be familiar with, but I think understanding this word will help us in the original language, understanding this word in the original language will help us to understand what Paul is trying to communicate, what God is trying to communicate to the church in general and to you as a Christ follower, specifically. It's the word agape, agape. Now, here's what's so interesting. The Greeks had up to eight words for the word love. And each one of them has a specific meaning and a specific nuance. Four of them were not used much at all. Four of them were used a lot. Four of those Greek words were used a lot. So we'll talk about those four. The first one is the one that we normally think of when we think of love, eros. Eros. 
That's probably what you and definitely what I think of when we think of 1 Corinthians 13. it's, It's that romantic kind of love. It's the love that we have, that we have for uh, someone else that, you know, when we first begin to meet and date and court and go through all the process leading up maybe to getting married and we have a romantic type of love. And that's one of the Greek words for love. Phileia, which is an affectionate love. Phileia or phileo, the brotherly kind of love. That's where Philadelphia came from. The city of brotherly love. Some of you are from there and you're like, not anymore. <laughs> I've seen the Eagles play football. I get it. <laughs> I might have just made some enemies. Anyway, <laughs> that's the brotherly kind of love that's based on like knowing someone and, and having this brotherly love, this connection. Have you ever had that in your life with, with someone who's... You know, not your wife or not your husband, but you, you have this connection with them. I've got friends. I've got a friend who was in a year ago. It doesn't matter whether we talk every week or every year. Brian and I, we just pick up right where we left off. That's phileo. And then there's agape, which is the selfless, universal God love. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. The fourth one is storge, which is like this familiar love, a love that you might have for your kids or a certain type of food, storge, they're familiar. Some of you are like, you just compared my kids to food? That's kind of what that means. It's a familiar type of love. I love storge, a certain type of food or a certain sport. But agape is the type of love that is everlasting because it's God's love. It is the purest form of love. It refers to a pure, I want you to hear this, it refers to a pure, willful, sacrificial type of love that intentionally desires the other person's highest good. You see, that type of love, a pure and willful, willfully sacrificial love that intentionally desires the other person's good is not found in any of the other four types of love in the original language. Do you see, church, that part of our problem is that in the English language, we only have one word for love. I'm just giving you four of the eight, four of the most familiar, four of the most used In the original language. You see eros. Eros. That romantic type of love. It can come and go. Am I right? Am I right? It can come and go. It doesn't last. It may last for a while. But as you husbands know. The first thing that you do after you're married. Wrong. Eros is gone for a little while. Right guys? Like, this just is what it is. It it comes and goes. It's based on our own feeling about the other person. The same thing is true for the phileo or the phileo type of love. You can be best friends with someone until they disappoint you or you disappoint them. Until there's a conflict. And then for a period of time, that love may be gone too. Same thing with storge. 
You may have a particular thing in your life that you love, that you like, that you have an affection for, and then something else comes along and you find this new interest, you find this new thing, you find this new food, you have another kid, and all of a sudden, the other ones are less important. I'm just kidding, all right? It does come and go, though, doesn't it? If it's not based on agape love. It comes and goes if it's not based on agape love. And as hard as we try, as hard as we try, the one who got this right was Jesus. It was God who was the one that created this type of love. Jesus was the counselor that won't refuse to take on us as clients, even though we are guilty. He stands before the Father and represents us. Jesus is the one who is the healer who never denies healing, even though we might have brought on our own disease. He is the one who saved and suffered and died, listen, for you, even though you might be the most sinful person that you know. He died for you anyway. That's sacrificial love. Love is permanent. Love is permanent, but it is also the greatest of all. I want to talk for two, just a few minutes about why it's permanent and why is it the greatest of all. First and foremost, love is permanent. It is never-ending. It is everlasting. God is everlasting. And since God is everlasting, therefore, God's love is everlasting. You see, the Bible talks a lot, specifically in the book of Isaiah, about God's, the fact that God himself is everlasting. God is everlasting. And the Bible speaks of the fact that God is love. And therefore, God's love is everlasting. That's why Paul says, these three remain, faith and hope and agape. Agape love. 1 John 4, verse 8 says this, anyone who does not love does not know God. By the way, he, in both of these references, uses the word agape. Anyone who does not agape does not know God. But he ends with this theological truth that is important for us to remember, that God is because God is love, because God is agape. And so, therefore, God's love is never-ending. Human love, it doesn't remain. Romance fades. Affection fades. Storge, eros, phileo, they all fade. But agape remains forever. Agape remains forever. It's a forever love. It is permanent. Just like faith and like hope, but Paul does something really interesting in verse 13. At the end, he says, the greatest of these is love. Now, it's easy for us to just kind of tritely accept that, but I want to know why does he vault that above the others? Why does he say all of these spiritual gifts that I've just talked about are incredibly important, but the ones that remain are faith and hope and love? Why in the world does he then say love is the greatest? Well, I think it's this. Sacrificial death is the ultimate expression of love. And because Jesus died to save us, God's love is the greatest of all the virtues. Now I want you to think for a moment about sacrificial death. Because I think that sometimes in the church that we can be a little bit trite with the idea of God sending his son 
Jesus to die on the cross. We say it so often. We focus on it so often. And sometimes maybe, 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 we become a little bit trite. Maybe not, maybe trite's not the right, right word, but we become a little bit rote or uh, we don't think about the depth to which Jesus sacrificed for us. Y'all, listen. He took the bullet for us. Stop and think about that for a moment. He stepped in to, to the penalty that we deserved. And he willingly, with his life, gave it up on the cross for you and for me. That is the purest form of love. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. For those of you who have had loved ones that served in the military and were willing to go into the battlefield, were willing to go into war for our country, who maybe died or sacrificed their lives for our country, or maybe you are one of those who did that, you show that sacrificial love. Your family member or your friend showed that type of love, but we see it most clearly, we see it most punctuated in the sacrificial death of Jesus because we miss this sometimes. When he was on the cross, the Bible tells us that he took the weight of the sins of all of the world on his shoulders. You see, his death was not just physical pain. It was spiritual agony. It was spiritual agony that he went through on that cross. And since sacrificial death is the ultimate expression of love, and because Jesus died to save us, because he sacrificed for us, that means that God's love, agape love, is the greatest of all of these virtues. Romans 5.8. Once again, the Apostle Paul, the same man, writing a letter to the church in Rome, he says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. If we did to one of our best friends or our most loved one what Jesus did for us, we would be mocked and ridiculed. And we would be made out to be crazy. Insane to take on the punishment that someone else deserves. But Jesus did that because he loved you and me. L listen, church, that's agape love. That is what Paul is speaking of here. And although we will never attain the level to which Jesus loved us, our goal should be to be like him our goal should be to live like Him. Our goal should be to respond to God in a way that we deeply understand 
the sacrifice that he made on the cross for us. You see, our response, I believe, to God's love is to first and foremost receive it, to live it, and to give thanks for it. He willingly did that for you and for me. I look at my kids, and I, I love, I cannot tell you, I, I have a, a daughter who is a senior in, in high school. The next year is going to be excruciating for dad, I'll tell you that. I, I'm going to need to get some advice from some of y'all who have gone before me on this, right? And for Cynthia as well. She's going to be leaving. I cannot believe that. It seems like just yesterday. I love my kids. I love my son. We were having so much fun together. At 14, I'm shocked. I was not that fun to my dad when I was 14. I promise you that. We are having a blast. Now, there are some days. There are some days that I would die for them. And then there are some days that I'd think about it for a second. You, you know what I mean, right? <laughs> listen, 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 listen. Jesus didn't give it a thought. He didn't give it a thought. He didn't give it a thought. 4.4 4 billion people feel like no one loves them. Yet the creator of the universe opened his arms wide and without a thought of what any of us have done he made that sacrifice he sent his one and only son to die on the cross and our response should first be to receive it john 3 16 says i know you know the verse like everyone knows the verse if you haven't been in church forever you probably know the verse for god so loved the world that he say the next word with me gave he gave his only son Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. And there's not too many free gifts I wouldn't receive. <laughs> but especially this one. And if you're watching online, or if you're here in the house listening, or if you're on the backstage patio and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never received God's amazing gift, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I would love for you to talk to one of us online. Let us know about that. Direct message us. Let us know how we can help lead you to a point where you receive the gift that God offered you. But the second thing that we ought to do, church, is we should live it. This is for, this is for us who call ourselves Christ followers not only were we to receive it, because if we just receive it and take it in and do nothing else with it, then we're really wasting this amazing gift that was so incredibly sacrificial. We should live it. We should live it. 1 John 4.19 says, We love. Why? Because he first loved us. And I think the church needs, the capital C church needs to take this verse and live it. We need to take on this verse and, and maybe change our minds and our attitudes and our, our opinions and our actions. The church, unfortunately, capital C church, has been known 
for people who don't love, but judge, criticize, critique, opine. Jesus says that we should love because he first loved us. I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning. God, I, I just want to thank you so much for your son. And God, I pray if there's anyone who's, who's here today, listening, watching in this room, and they haven't received you as their Savior. Father God, I pray that maybe today would be their day of salvation. Maybe today would be the day that they accept you as their Savior. In fact, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I feel led to do this. You can come talk to me or one of our other pastors afterwards, but if you have never received Jesus as your Savior, if you've never received that amazing gift that he has given us, I want to encourage you to do that right now. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer out loud. If you want to walk into eternity and receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that God offers through his Son because of agape, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. It goes like this. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying for my sin. Thank you for loving me enough to send your son to sacrificially die for me. Today, I accept you as my Savior. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to come and talk to me afterwards. Let me know about that. Direct message us online. Talk to one of our, our, our greeters or one of our pastors. We would love to know you prayed that prayer. But Father, I pray in the strong name of Jesus, that you would allow us who are Christ followers to live agape. God, would you allow us to realize the weight and the seriousness and the significance of what you did by going to the cross. Let us not take it in a way that's trite or take it for granted or just not think on it. Let us dwell on that. And may we live that way. May we live that way when we go into our homes, when we leave this place with each other. Father, may we live agape with our husbands and our wives and our kids and our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. Father, may we agape, may we strive to live like you with the person that drives us nuts at work or in school. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to agape when we want to rip someone apart. Because you agaped for us. You stood in the gap for us. You sacrificed for us. And I pray that we as a church would live it. Help us to have the courage and conviction to do that. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Our response to God's love is to receive it. And to live it, and some of you, I think I might have heard you say you skipped one. It's also to give thanks for it. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to give thanks for it by coming to this table, the communion table. Some of you may have grown up in a tradition where it's called the Holy Eucharist or the Eucharist. And that word simply means to give thanks. He did so much for us. It's good for us to give thanks for the good things that God's done. 
It's really good for us to give thanks for the greatest thing that God did. So part of our response to today's message is to give thanks by receiving communion together. The people of God have always given thanks all the way back in the early days of Jewish history for the great things that God has done. They met together on a certain day for the Passover meal, and they gave thanks for the deliverance that God gave them from Egypt. And in the first century, there was Jesus with his guys in the upper room. They gave thanks. Luke twenty-two nineteen 19 says, he took the bread when he had given thanks. He broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When they had given thanks. When they had given thanks. And today, we're going to give thanks to God for what he's done through this meal. It's an application of our message, and today I'm holding these, uh, this element. This is a small chalice, and what's going to happen, I'll give you instructions here in a, in a moment, but you're going to take this back to your seat, and when you're ready, you can take the top off of this, and you can take the bread, which is down on the bottom, take that first, and then turn it over, and you can take the cup, take the top right off of there, and you can take communion as a family back at your seat. Those of you who are at home, I want to encourage you right now to get a cracker or uh, some kind of juice and some kind of juice so that you can take it together. But here's what I need you to do here in the room. The action of standing up and receiving communion, it's a good thing. It's a good action. But we can't have all of you stand up at once. So I'm going to ask for some of you to take some time and just remain where you are. And ask God for forgiveness of the sins that you've committed. Give him thanks for what he's done. Be in a mode for these next few minutes that's prayerful and focused on giving thanks to him. And when you're ready, come to the table. Some of you, you can get up and come to the table and then go sit down and do those things. I'm going to let you take this when you're ready. We've got plenty of time. Our band is singing two songs. You have plenty of time to just come to this table. Our ushers will be up here in a moment, and they're going to have these trays that will have these in it. You can take it back, and you can take it on your own. We've got time. Let's just rest, and let's let God do something in our hearts and our lives as we give thanks for agape. I'm going to read this whole passage from Luke 22, and then the table will be open for you to come forward. Luke records it this way. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took that cup and when he had given thanks, he said this, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took that bread, which represents his body. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, as this communion table opens, as we walk forward slowly over the next 10 minutes or so. Father, would you show us any way that we need to confess 
so that we come to this table with clean hands and pure hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to focus on all that you did on the cross. God, may we, as we touch that bread and as we drink this juice, may we, your people, give thanks for what you did on the cross. Thank you, Father, for this. This communion table is now open. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. You guys can come forward and you can begin to receive these elements.